Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Well, good morning, friends. Thank you for joining us this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them up to 2 Timothy? I had written kind of like a long introduction, but I want to skip that because I just want to point out one of my favorite things uh, at Journey Church when we gather together every Sunday is the pastoral prayer. One of the reasons for that is you see the personalities of those whom each of you, if you're a member here, you vote on who the elders are, who, who makes certain decisions at this church, who is leading us in discipleship, who is leading us in uh, seeking to structure and organize how we are formed in Christ-likeness. And when you, when you watch the pastoral prayer, I feel so edified uh, by different things. I mean, just thinking when Tom gets up here and prays, if you don't know Tom Tompkins, you can, you can start listening, and then you think, is this man paid to write the notes and study Bibles? It's very clean, crisp. There's references to various theologians. I think he quoted Anselm last time he prayed. Uh, and then you get, you know, Ken comes up here, Ken Martin, and he has this, ah, shucks, I'm just a country boy, what am I doing up here? And then he just cuts straight to the heart with his prayer, and I'm borderline tears when he prays. And then you have Micah come up here, and you have Micah just the, like, moment of truth, here's what this means, and he just looks you in the eye and just says, I don't love your kids all that much. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I... I love it every time Micah prays, and it's similarly because he's thinking about the theology of the text, the scripture, he's, he wants to put his mind in it and let the Lord speak through him as he leads us in prayer. And I always learn something new whenever Micah prays, like this week I learned that Kelly, in terms of children, is a universalist, and Micah is a particularist in terms of children. So, it's just, I really do, I love this church. Uh, so thank you for joining us this morning. We are continuing our reflections on Paul's second letter to his friend and his protege, Timothy. We are looking at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we, uh, and by we, I mean Pastor Jim, myself, the elders, we decided 2 Timothy would be a good way to open this year because we see what's happening in our culture as providing a, an important and crucial time to think about and to reflect on what it means to follow Jesus with a sincere and urgent and a fortified faith. And we see this encouragement throughout this letter, and by sincere I mean uh, Paul encourages us to have a sincere faith, which means that it's grounded in both internal and external realities, that Paul wants us to have, have a faith in Christ that is felt to the core of our being, and that it is believed truly and deeply, but that it is not just merely something taking place inside of us, but that our faith is rational and justified because it corresponds to the outside world. And so when we say that we believe in something, we actually believe in something that took place in history, in time, and in space, and that then we can look at evidence and say, my belief, my faith is sincere and it is grounded. And so when we make claims like the claim that God exists, the claim that Jesus is his unique son, and the outlandish claim that Jesus, the son of God, became a man, was nailed to a cross, and yet three days later he walked out of a tomb. We can say that in a substantiated way, pointing at the evidence for the Christian faith. 
And likewise, our faith ought to be urgent because we live in this liminal period, this threshold point between an age that has gone past and an age that is coming. And we don't know when our Lord will return to judge the quick and the dead. And so we live with a sense of urgency for our mission and a sense of urgency for our discipleship. And so we pursue sharing the gospel. We pursue, per, uh, we pursue growing in Christ-likeness. We know that we are each sinners who have violated God's law, but we know that on the basis of Christ's work and Christ's work alone, every sinner can be justified. And so we have an urgency toward our belief, toward our discipleship, and toward our mission of evangelism of those around us. And finally, a fortified faith. Paul, talking to his protege Timothy, regularly comes back to this need again and again to endure suffering. To endure that which the world throws at us. And I don't mean world just by like external things. When you walk out of this church, you walk into the world. I mean systems of uh, systems that exist in terms of sin, in terms of Satan, uh, spiritual realities. And so Paul says that we need, to, we need to endure physical persecution, social shaming. And if we are to take Paul's letter to the Ephesians as evidence as well, we might as well add in spiritual warfare, tests and temptations, trials and tribulations. And Paul warns and exhorts Timothy, and through exhorting Timothy, exhorts us that we must endure each of these things. And since Timothy is a pastor, that he must also teach them to his people. So we have been walking through 2 Timothy, hoping to teach ourselves these things. So as I said, if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do, we will be looking at 2 Timothy. And today we are looking at chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Would you follow along in your Bibles as I read these? Paul begins, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For we have, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray one more time before we unpack these verses. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we gather this morning, yes, to obey this command to remember Jesus. To be formed in his image as we sing, as we pray, as we sit under your word, read and proclaimed. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would work in us now, work in our hearts to form us. That the words of my mouth, the meditations of each of our hearts would be honoring to you and that we might be edified and encouraged as your people. Pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So this text begins telling us to remember Jesus. And it's interesting because I, I started this sermon saying that 2 Timothy was chosen because of the sort of crisis moment that many of us feel our culture is at. 
where we feel a need to reflect on the sincerity, urgency, and fortification of our faith. And yet, as I think about the, the call to remember Christ, I can't think of a single person or a single constituency in the Western world who would have a problem with that. I can't think of anybody who would want to say that that's a bad thing. It seems to me that everybody wants to remember Jesus, but the crucial questions are, what does it mean to remember, and who is the Jesus that we remember? Now, simply put, to remember is to take something, to hold it before your mind, and to reflect on it. And memory is interesting because memory ties into how God created us to be. It anchors our mind and our body together in an interesting way. I mean, let me just give you an example. Uh, I don't know if this happens to every parent, but I am at a time in my life where uh, particularly my oldest son uh, wants to hear stories about my childhood and my adolescence. And I don't know what he would say is his favorite story now in, in this actual moment, but his favorite story a few months back was the story about when I got the Steve Miller band out of a tree in my mom's front yard. Now, I realize that many of you just heard a set of words and you think, I know every single word in that sentence and I have no idea what he just said. I don't like telling long drawn out stories so I'm gonna do this as, as quickly as possible. Uh, when I was about 17 to 19, memory's a little bit fuzzy, uh, but somewhere in that age range, uh, I was dating a beautiful young woman, and we were spending time hanging out at a pet shelter. Now, because my girlfriend was pretty, and remains so to this day, uh, and because I did not have a fully developed prefrontal cortex, which is debatable to this day, uh, I ended up adopting a cat not my best decision. Because of reasons that I right now cannot explain, I named that cat the Steve Miller Band. <laughs> because of reasons relating to animal instinct and biology, that cat ended up in top of an approximately two-story tall redwood tree in my mom's front yard. Because the Steve Miller Band was in fact a kitten and therefore inexperienced in this world, said cat could not make it back down that tree. Because this cat was afraid, it started mewing. Mewing loud enough, in fact, to eventually get my mind off of said pretty girlfriend sitting next to me on the couch and onto a question beginning to percolate in the back of my mind that was something along the lines of, what is that distant, quiet mewing noise? <laughs> because I searched endlessly for this cat in my home to not find it, I then looked outside at which point I discovered the Steve Miller Band at the top of the Redwood Tree. Because I had climbed that Redwood Tree many times and experience told me that both hands would be necessary for reaching the top of the tree, I found my navy blue Jansport backpack. I climbed the tree, I took the cat, shoved it into the backpack, zipped the backpack closed, climbed back down the tree. Why tell that story? For two reasons. One, none of you experienced this, but as I told that story, something started happening in my body. I can recall, as I think about and draw that memory to my mind, I can recall the smell of the redwood tree. I can recall the feel of the cat's claws coming through that very thin navy blue Jansport backpack. 
I can recall the feel of the sap on my hands for the next two days as I tried and failed many times to get it off. You see, the way the Lord made us, memory draws forth detail, and memory anchors our minds and our bodies together. And so Paul tells us to remember the past, to remember Jesus, because memory attaches us to the past. But the second reason to tell the story is because it, uniquely in my experience, it informs the importance of identity. When I walked outside, I did not find an aged 1966-1978-ish rock band, psychedelic rock band, sitting in my mom's tree, lightly humming, learning to fly. I found a tiny little kitten at the very top of the tree, gently mewing. As we encounter this text and as we encounter the command to remember Christ, what we need to know is that Timothy and therefore we need to remember, which means that we need to be attached to the reality of the past, that we need to remember Christ in order to have a sincere and urgent and a fortified faith. So the question then becomes, how do we do that? How do we engage in this and how do we become people who remember Christ. I would suggest, and I think this comes through in the story, that we, we engage in it in the entirety of our created being. Jim and I have mentioned a few times throughout this sermon series and others on other occasions that we live in a time of doubt and deconstruction, of de-churching. And it strikes me that this trend... It is not an accident that it also corresponds with the rise of digital technology. Now, there's many good things that digital technology does, but one of the things that digital technology, in fact, does is that it mediates between us and the world in a way that blunts our senses. When I engage with something through a screen on my iPad, on my phone, on my television screen, the only sense that becomes important and crucial is the visual I know that there's often audio involved, but if you ever walk into a mall that has something playing on TVs in the food court, while also there's that music in the background where they're playing like redone 90s pop songs, you start to, the music starts to fade out and you start to focus more and more on the visual cues of the television. We lose our senses as we engage in it. And there's something interesting about our culture that it mediates all these things to us through screens in which visual imagery, but neither smell, taste, touch, hearing, start, they all start to lose their reality. By contrast, the Christian faith historically has heightened our senses, has required us to engage in them, to engage in our senses in order to recall the reality of the past, the past of both the historical Jesus, the past of the Christian church, and even our own personal pasts. So we often, we begin the Christian life with the liturgical element of baptism, where we don't just believe something in our mind, we don't just watch something with our eyes, but we immerse ourselves in water. 
We become hyper aware of ourselves, especially if you're afraid of public speaking. You're standing up there, and in some churches, they make you tell a testimony or they make you answer questions, and you become very aware of how nervous you are and what's taking place inside and the rapidity of your heartbeat. You become aware of your, of your body. You become aware of the feel and the smell of the water. You have the moment of going under, coming up, the exhale as you take in new air and you are covered from head to toe in the element of your new birth as at your, your physical birth you were covered from head to toe in the waters and elements of that birth. So too we maintain the Christian life as we will later today by taking of a different liquid, by taking bread and sticking it in our mouths and chewing and tasting a symbol of Christ's body broken for us and taking the juice or wine as a symbol of Christ's blood spilt for us and the sense of smell and taste are engaged. And so we participate in these liturgical activities to help us remember the past. The personal past of when we gave our lives to the Lord, when we finally bowed the knee and said that the intellectual evidence and the emotional feel and what I see in the world corresponds with this proclamation. And so we placed our faith in it and symbolically were dunked under the baptismal waters. And so every time we watch a new brother or sister go into the baptismal, we can recall to our mind the memory and the sense perception of our own baptism. And every time we take the juice and the bread, we can recall to mind the fact that all the sins we have ever committed or will ever commit have been dealt with in a single moment on the cross of Christ. And there was a point in time which we would not have said that, but now we say that, we proclaim it, and we believe it ardently. And in the past, the historic Christian tradition We have long tasted and seen, not only known and believed, the gospel. But don't forget the problem of identity. Who is the Steve Miller band? Who is this Jesus that we are supposed to remember? In our text, Paul gives us two identifiers of Jesus. The first identifier, Jesus who is risen. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. This is the central truth of the Christian faith. We believe in a man who claimed to be God, who died but did not stay dead. And so Paul proclaims to the church at Corinth, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance, the most important thing in Paul's gospel, I deliver to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. A bit later in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 18, Paul tells us, that if there is no res resurrection from the dead, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is in vain. You see, to believe sincerely, urgently, and to have a fortified faith in this day and age means that you cannot believe in a Christ, in a Jesus, who is bone and ash somewhere in a grave in Israel. 
If there is no empty tomb, then our faith is vanity. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those who have gone before us, those who have also fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. What Paul is saying here is that the resurrection is the unmovable hub on which all the spokes of Christian doctrine and Christian life come off. Without the hub, everything else falls to the ground. The second identifier Paul gives is that Jesus is the offspring of David. I find this clause curious because if you were to ask me uh, to give you two clauses, if you had 15 seconds to share the gospel, two clauses to define Jesus' identity, to share the gospel with somebody else, I'm not certain that offspring of David would have made the top two list in the way I think about it. And yet Paul follows offspring of David with, as preached in my gospel. Now, actually, when we spend a moment's reflection on this, we probably shouldn't be surprised. After all, to refer to Jesus as the offspring of David is simply to show that Paul is aware of how Matthew and Mark are likely telling the story of Jesus. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy, and genealogies aren't like us. What we do genealogies is sort of like a fun family little tree. We swab the inside of our mouth, send it off. You get a DNA result from all these different people you're related to, and it's just something you kind of preoccupy your time with as sort of a hobby. But in Jesus' day, genealogies were resumes, markers of identity, who you are, what you're worth, your purpose, and your value. And Matthew begins his genealogy this way, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why is Jesus' identity as the son or offspring of David important to Paul and Matthew? Because it makes the gospel about more than just an individual's personal salvation. The gospel is about more than just me, which is why we encounter another phrase in Mark's gospel, where the gospel, according to Mark, is not simply one of individual salvation, but one of an entire kingdom, a community, a history, a movement pushing forward. So Mark, in chapter 1, verse 15, having told us about Jesus' temptation and trial in the wilderness, his baptism with John the Baptist, and he comes into town, and he proclaims the gospel, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, the offspring of David and the kingdom of God are connected concepts that anchor salvation and anchor the Christian message in more than just you and me. Without them, it seems to me that Paul is saying there's something lacking in our understanding of Jesus Christ. Again, I don't think that this should surprise us. After all, our own church's doctrine statement. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, and notice this phrase, Israel's promised Messiah was conceived through the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. 
That phrase, Israel's promised Messiah, is communicating the same concept. The Messiah is the anointed king, and the fact that this anointed king is the king of Israel means that he is from the line of David. Further, we have even sung this this morning as we have sung about our salvation and the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of what God has been doing in this world. And when we sang of that, we sang of Jesus as Lord, Christ, and King. So what is the kingdom of God? What can we say about it? Well, I think the place we want to start is simply defining the term. What is a kingdom? A kingdom is a realm ruled by a king inhabited by a populace or a people. Or as Patrick Schreiner, a theologian, put it more euphoniously, a kingdom is where a king's power is active over a king's people who dwell in the king's land or the king's place. Apply that grid to scripture and you will find a puzzling realization you will find that the Bible tells you a story of a kingdom split into two kingdoms and at the end of the book reunified back into one. And when I say that, I don't mean to, to posit an idea where there is a kingdom in which God rules over all of us righteous folk and then there's a kingdom over which God does not rule. Rather, a close reading of the scriptures will tell you that God rules over both kingdoms. They both belong to him. He just rules them in different ways. In one kingdom, what we might call the common kingdom, God rules according to a promise he made in Genesis 9 to a man named Noah. And he rules over that kingdom by a covenant he made and by the natural law, the things that we can derive that are right and wrong about this world simply by observing God's creation. But he rules over another kingdom, what we might call the redemptive or salvific kingdom. And this kingdom comprises not all people, but only those who recognize Christ as king. And he rules this kingdom by the law of the king, what we would call the Sermon on the Mount. As Christians, we live in both kingdoms, and we must learn to function as citizens of both kingdoms. We are subject to God's natural law, and the covenant he made with Noah, and we are also subject to Christ's teachings and how he redefined and clarified the Torah of the Old Testament. In fact, in this moment, we gather together because of the freedom we are intended to experience through the common kingdom, and we gather together to do what we are called to do as citizens of the redemptive kingdom, to come together as a body, as a people, as a representation of God's salvific or redemptive kingdom, and to declare that he is, in fact, the one and true king over this world. To declare that he requires certain things of us, and that he has paved a way for relationship with him through his son. Again, we can have a sincere and urgent and fortified faith only if we understand who Jesus is as the one who is resurrected and as the one who is king of the kingdom. And it's urgent because we recognize that one day this kingdom, these two kingdoms will again be unified. And at that point, the king will judge the living and the dead. 
offering life and salvation to some, and damnation and death to others. And they will be separated from the goodness of Christ's reign. The only way out is to hear it proclaimed. And so we live with an urgent faith because we live in this intervening time. And so Paul tells us, who is Jesus? He is the one who is raised. He is the offspring of David, which is another way of saying that he is the one coming who will put these two kingdoms back together. And when he puts them back together, we find that creation has been groaning for this unification. It longs for its king to come and reunite creation the way it was always intended. And so, too, we could say that the church has been awaiting this. We long to see our world set right. And I don't just mean the world outside of the doors, but I mean, in a sense, my role in the world. I long to see my heart set right, that the compass of my heart would point towards God, that I would be defined by love of Him. And so, too, we in the church groan as we encounter our own sin, as we encounter the enemy, Satan, and as we encounter death, the consequence of sin. We want our King to return. And even in the midst of this broken world, we think about Jesus as the offspring of David. It reminds us that even now he reigns. And so we could say this about our text as well. Timothy, and therefore we, need to know, which is to be attached to the reality not just of the past, but also the present that Christ reigns now, and the future that Christ's reign will not end, but merely be unified. Said differently, if I know Jesus reigns now and his reign won't end, we can have a sincere and urgent and a fortified faith in the midst of suffering and trials. On the flip side, if we forget that Jesus reigns here and now, if we forget that he will reign in the future, then the urgency of our discipleship and evangelism becomes lethargic. Then the sincerity of our faith begins to wane. And the fortification of our faith is in peril as we face persecution and the worldly shaming tactics and our indwelling sin. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking, there are so many things, though, in life that distract me. It is hard enough to get just regular daily tasks done, let alone to remember Christ, to call him to mind in this way. There are so many things vying for my time and attention. Most of them aren't even bad. Three little children, a beautiful wife, a job I enjoy, and the joys and pleasures of God's created world. And on top of that, I just feel so forgetful sometimes. And so before we freak out about our own personal circumstances, let's rightly orient the context of this in Paul's circumstances. Notice this, Paul, in 2 Timothy 2, 9 through 10. For which I am suffering, bound in chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
Paul is suffering for the gospel. He is bound in chains quite literally. And yet he says, but the word of God is in fetters. Paul illustrates what he means by this. Uh, Both we see it in the book of Acts where we see Paul in prison, but we also see it in Philippians chapter 1. Paul writes to the Philippian church and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what has happened to Paul being put in prison, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the entire imperial guard to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord in my imprisonment and much more boldly to speak the word without fear. Interestingly enough, Paul says his imprisonment has done two things. It has enabled the word of God to go to those it would not normally reach. He has been put in prison, and yet the entire imperial guard, people who are literally chained at the ankle to Paul, now hear the gospel. So that all of Roman soldiers in this jail know the reason why Paul is in this jail is because a Jewish carpenter got hung on a wooden cross and three days later walked out of a tomb. And the second thing that happens, in this church, Paul says, when, when I get arrested, somebody else steps up and they say, I'm the next guy on the depth chart. I'm in. And they step into that role such that the gospel continues to go forth. In the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, he says of God's word, speaking for God, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose for it, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Here's my point. Before we freak out about our ability to remember Christ and whatever our life circumstances are, the first thing we need to recognize is no matter what we face, the word of God is not bound. And that is true in our world and in our own lives. Whatever circumstances we feel weigh us down, encountering and engaging and coming to God's word, they cannot, it cannot be bound by whatever it is that life throws at us. We can have a sincere and urgent and a fortified faith because the word of God always accomplishes what God set out for it. That is, the word of God will always fulfill God's purpose in our world and in our lives. Interestingly enough, Paul, as he's thinking about this, presents us with a question. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And I think you could put in parentheses the implied question, how do you think about your suffering? What do you endure for? You see, speaking personally, I don't consider my life to be one characterized by suffering. That being said, I do often feel worn down. I relate to the notion of the daily grind. I feel like it often gets the better of me. That when I begin with high energy, intention, and intensity, I can be worn down until it seems to me in my fallen and frail mind the only option for relief is to reach for sin. And so I am capable of lashing out in anger and frustration. I am capable of turning inward in self-pity, self-centeredness, and self-indulgence. Interestingly enough, 
I think Paul's prescription with his imprisonment is the same if you, like me, simply relate to that. I don't face external persecution. I don't know anybody trying to shame me out of the gospel, but I do just experience the daily grind of trying to get through the life God has given me. I find this interesting just as a side note because so many of the things that wear me down, so many of the things I feel like are burdens, I spent hours, if not days, if not weeks, if not months, if not entire years praying for. I asked the Lord to give me certain blessings, and once he gave them to me, they began to feel to me as burdens. My marriage, my kids, my job, each one of them in isolation, when I think about it, I love and I asked for, and yet at certain times, I feel weary just doing what these blessings require. For me, Paul's prescription is the same. In the midst of suffering and struggle, I might expect that his prescription, by the way, would be something like, glorify God. That's what he says in Romans. Set your mind on Christ. That's what he says in Colossians. But here he says this, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Do me a favor. Here's what I want you to do now. I just want you to look around in this room. It's one of the privileges I get as a pastor who gets to stand on this stage and look at you while something's happening. I get to see everybody's faces. We can ask the question of how we conceptualize suffering. And I would say that when Paul wants us to think about suffering, and Paul, again, is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this, he thinks about, yes, the glory of God, check. He thinks about, yes, the flourishing of living the way God intended him to, check. But he also thinks about all of the elect. He thinks about us. He thinks about those who surround him. And he says, I have a desire and a commitment to endure for their sake. Would we be willing to endure more if we thought not only about ourselves and God, but we thought about each other? As we look around at the brothers and sisters gathered with us this morning, and it's family worship as well, so you see the next generation sprinkled all throughout. What would we be willing to endure if we thought about their faith? about them obtaining salvation, as Paul would say. You see, if you're like me, then you feel like maybe nine days out of ten, you do an excellent job enduring the daily grind that God throws at you. And by throws at you, I mean the blessings he has given you. But on that one day out of ten, it is so easy for me to ask if I'm alone in this. It is so easy for me to wonder how much longer, further, or harder I could press on and endure. And friend, if you are like me, I want you to recognize right now, somebody in this room may be looking at you, thinking about what they will endure that you might persevere, that you might have their testimony of God's faithfulness in their life. Now, maybe this seems a bit over the top to us because Paul applies the phrase, obtain salvation. 
which is, by the way, just a weird sentence. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain salvation. It seems to imply at just a cursory reading that the elect or some of the elect might not obtain salvation. But we have to say that that can't be true because that's not what the word elect means. There are all sorts of theological debates about how this happens, but I want to point out when Paul refers to the elect here, he does not make any reference to the mechanism of election because that's not his point. His point in this text is who the elect are. And the word election refers to those chosen by God. Again, we're not told the mechanism. We are simply told about those who are chosen by God. And we know that those chosen by God will obtain salvation. So why is this in a mood a possibility? Why is it that they may obtain salvation? I think the possibility that Paul is drawing before his mind as he seeks to endure trials and tribulations is the possibility of time. Paul trusts that the Lord will save his, but he's saying, I am willing to do, endure anything. I am willing to endure everything. That the time between right now and the eternal glory of them knowing and trusting and worshiping Christ is made as small as possible. I am willing to endure that they might soon obtain salvation. Again, we live in a time known for its de-churching, de-converting, deconstructing. And I just want to point out that many, not necessarily most and certainly not all, but many of those who deconstruct, who doubt, and who walk away from the church, many will return. What are you and I willing to endure that that might happen soon? That their time of wandering in the wilderness of doubt might be cut shorter. As well, like I said, this is a family worship. We have kids all around us. What would be, we be willing to endure that they might come to know their Savior soon? And every Sunday, by the way, because of our emphasis on disability ministry, we have those around us who have a cognitive disability. What would we be willing to do that they might know their Savior soon? That they might have more understanding more quickly. It's interesting here because I think Paul leaves that concept hanging in the air, and I think it's because he knows that many of us have a question. We have an insecurity as he brings up this concept of doubt and endurance and perseverance, and here's how he answers the insecurity. He doesn't come up with his own phrase. He quotes a hymn of his first century world. And in verses 11 through 13, he says, the saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he, will also, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. As he thinks about and preaches about and tells Timothy about what it means to endure, he points us back to the reality that the Christian life is not just a choice of life or death, but it is actually a choice of whether we will go through death to obtain eternal life. 
He says this in the book of Romans, in Romans 6, verses 4 through 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The late apologist Francis Schaeffer described this, uh, what Paul is getting at in this verse, and he said, As Christ's rejection and death are the first steps in order of redemption, so our rejection and death to things and self are the first steps in the order of true and growing spirituality. As there could be no next step in the order of Christ's redemption until the step of death was taken, so in the Christian there can be no further step until the first two steps are faced, not in theory only, but at least in some partial practice, rejected, slain. And we must be careful here not to think of the Christian faith as one of mere drudgery or duty because Christ goes on to, or Paul goes on to say that if we endure, we will reign. We will experience flourishing. If we get through the trials and tribulations, the daily grind of this life, we will find everlasting joy. We will reign as priest princes underneath our priest king Christ. But here's where our doubt comes in. Here's where the insecurity that Paul wants to get at comes in, because the saying says, yet if we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, in such an age of doubt and deconstruction, maybe some of us are sitting here wondering, have I already denied? Have I already walked away? This is the beauty of the Christian faith. That Paul, as soon as he brings up this, as soon as he prompts the question in our mind, have I denied the Father? Have I denied Christ? Have I denied the cross? Have I deconverted or deconstructed or doubted too much? He applies this balm, this salve, this ointment, this medication. If we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What does it mean that he cannot deny himself? Remember, he's referring to the elect. Who are the elect to Christ? There's so many places we could go, so many things we could look at. Here's what I want to say. In John chapter 10, Jesus told us that he is our shepherd and that we are his sheep. And he said, my sheep know me and they know my voice. I have called them and not one of them will be snatched from my hand. If we friends are faithless, if we struggle with doubt, deconstruction, deconversion, if we wonder if we have denied Christ, know when we come back that no matter what, he will remain faithful to his promises. To fail to save a single one of his sheep 
would be to deny himself his rightful inheritance. And Christ will not deny himself. Neither will he lose a single one of us, even us of little faith. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the truth that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, that you, though he died on the cross, you raised him from the dead, the offspring of David, the one who is risen, that he sits and reigns, and that through recognizing that, through recognizing and remembering him, we might have a sincere, an urgent, and a fortified faith. So Lord, would you work that in us this morning as we turn to the remembrance of Christ in communion. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.